Hello, my name is Andy, and I'm the associate pastor here at Generations Church. If you've joined our church since we started live streaming, then I want to welcome you. The last time I spoke was March 8th, the exact week before we all went into quarantine. So it's been about seven months. Since then, it seems uh, a lot has happened. Normally, I would continue my sermon series in Matthew, but I feel compelled to address some current events. You can probably guess from the sermon title what I want to talk about. This is a hard year to be a pastor. There's social unrest because of the pandemic. There's civil unrest because of racial injustice. There's political unrest as the presidential election draws near. And I think we are all zoomed out. Am I right? I'm not a politician. I'm not a pundit. I'm not a get-out-the-vote worker for a political party. But today I want to address the the divisiveness that we have witnessed in our nation over the past seven months and how we can respond that honors God. And I'm thinking of three things. The COVID-19 pandemic, which in March prompted the United States to begin shutting down major league sports, gatherings and concerts, schools and restaurants, and eventually most of the economy. The Black Lives Matter movement, which gained a lot of traction in the summer after some high-profile incidents of racial injustice. I'll probably spend a little bit more time here. And finally, upcoming presidential election. America is very bitterly divided right now, and I think it will get worse as the weeks go on until the election. So, I think we can all agree that 2020 will be known as one of the strangest and most difficult years the world has ever experienced. I've been observing how humans, how we humans have dealt with the trials of 2020, especially the three major ones. Why do we humans disagree so much? How can someone believe this or or how can someone believe that? I've tried to observe, collect data this entire time. I've been thinking about these three topics for for quite a while. Um, A little background on me. I'm a big believer in the scientific method. I used to be a scientist. In science, we have to be open-minded about curious things in this universe. Drawing preconceived conclusions is dangerous and sets back scientific advancement. Because then all you're trying to do is you're trying to fit data to your preconceived conclusion. Remember, only a few hundred years ago, we humans still believed that the sun revolved around the earth. Now, conclusions are only as good as the data you collect. And even then, it is subject to human interpretation and human flaws. Today, I think we humans collect data in at least two ways. There are more, but I'm just going to talk about these two. One, life experiences, and two, the media, for things we don't or we can't actually experience personally. Okay, uh, the first one, life experience. Many years ago, I was called in for potential jury duty. When you get into that room and you look around, you see people from all walks of life, all colors of people, all socioeconomic backgrounds. If you've ever been called for down for jury duty, then you, you know what I'm talking about, right? Most of us live in the San Gabriel Valley bubble of Asianness, so it's a really eye-opening experience. The selection process knows the jury pool is very diverse, and they're trying to find neutral, unbiased people. Neutral, unbiased people. The trial I was a potential juror for was a physical abuse case. A man was accused of assaulting a woman. We actually saw the defendant there. Both sides, the prosecution and defense, And the defense, along with the judge, just went around and asked each of us a lot of personal questions. 
They wanted to know if our past personal history might affect the way we saw this trial and its evidence. Most of the questions were, have you been a victim of physical abuse? Um, they, they also asked her opinion of the police and how trustworthy we viewed them. If we gave answers that were too far extreme one way or the other, they didn't want us. If we grew up in an abusive home, they figured that we might be more willing to convict the defendant. Or if we hated the police, they figured that we might be um, more willing to acquit the defendant. They were trying to find neutral, unbiased people. And let me tell you, the selection process was like group therapy. All of a sudden, in a room full of strangers, people are, are opening up about the abuse they suffered in the past. Keep in mind, we are all complete strangers to one another, and suddenly we are given a glimpse into each other's private lives, some of those profound, painful experiences I had ever heard. I came to know some of the most personal, private pain of strangers. And it seemed that some of the stories that we all heard, those people had not yet told their own loved ones. Many jurors were softly crying. Others nodding in sympathy. Maybe it's easier to talk in front of strangers because we, we know we'll never see each other again. I, I don't know. The jury selection process knows that it's hard for us humans to be objective. They know that our life experiences will color our perceptions of the trial. Now, I wasn't chosen that day, but I, I remember thinking to myself as I was driving home, as we are all sinful humans, I think in this respect, we humans... We have a lot of prejudices, and prejudices are really difficult to get rid of. The attorneys were trying to weed out jurors who might show prejudice in the trial, and that was very difficult. Most of us were sent home that day. Remember this. Our life experiences affect the way we see things. Okay, uh, the second way uh, I think we humans collect data is from the media. And I think the internet and smartphones have made this very accessible. We read about events in the news, whether it's about how far the virus is spreading, another injustice against a person of color, or the political battleground. Here's a quote from Malcolm X. The media is the most powerful entity on earth. They have the power to make the innocent guilty and to make the guilty innocent. And that's power because they control the minds of the masses. That quote is so true. I've been combing through various media outlets and social media posts to make sense of everything. I've read both liberal and conservative articles and tried to see both sides, both points of view. And honestly, at times, it's been difficult for me to separate fact from fiction or fake news or, or false reporting. Here's a chart here. Fact-checking is exhausting and media bias is real. I notice what some of these sites report on and equally telling what they don't report on. Both sides omit things. Here's just one chart on media bias. And one thing to note, I think even these charts are biased, ironically. So don't even take these charts uh, like these as, as gospel. Here's another one that I use more. Some websites are so skewed that they are no longer news or even factual representations. I'm sure you've seen these charts before. These sites spew out nonsense and are harmful to the public discourse. I'm not going to tell you which ones to read or not to read. But if you lean one way or the other, try reading something from the other side. Or better yet, maybe try to focus somewhere in the middle. Why do I bring this up? No one is above fact-checking. The apostle himself was fact-checked. Look here in Acts 17. 
uh, verse 11. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see what Paul said was true, to see if what Paul said was true. These people were verifying what Paul said against the Bible. I try to verify things I see on social media. I hope you go the extra step as well. So to recap, two factors, our differing life experiences and our media consumption will shape how we view events in the world, pandemic, racial injustice, politics. Our different experiences, our our different contexts shape how we view things. People will believe what they believe. People will believe what they believe. I know someone who didn't believe that California was was under a drought these past few years. If you remember, we we finally came out of the drought, uh, I think sometime in early 2019. They kept claiming the earth is three quarters water. We live next to an ocean. How can we be in a drought? The earth is three quarters water. We live next to an ocean. How can we be in a drought? And I remember I did briefly think about talking to them about the exorbitant costs of desalination plants. But at that moment, I knew that I cannot engage them in any meaningful conversation. And I feel the same way when I see fights on social media between Christians. So what happens when we have all these different life experiences reading different biased media? What happens? We fight on social media. We fight in the streets. And we fight in our country. And so bigotry starts to rear its ugly head. We start to hate people we don't even know just because they view things differently than us. Bigotry. Intolerance toward those who hold different opinions from ourselves. Let me ask you, have you been a bigot? Looking at that definition, I have. We need to ask ourselves honestly, have we shown this behavior in us? Are we so devoted to our opinions? Are we so devoted to our prejudices that we have become intolerant toward others? We need to eliminate bigotry from our lives. But I realize this is difficult when many of us feel that our deepest values or our loved ones are threatened by people on the other side. But John writes here in 1 John 2 verse 9, Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. I'll skip to verse 11. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. We can't claim to be a believer and hate a fellow believer. We can't claim to be a believer and hate a fellow believer, a fellow Christian. Now, I know what the obvious counter is, is, is okay, but I can't, can I hate a person who isn't a Christian, right? Can I, can I do that? To which I would ask you, well, how will you then win them over to Christ? Is your view, is your political opinion more important than the gospel of Jesus Christ? In 1 Peter 2, verse 17, show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God, honor the emperor. Honoring someone means we pray for them. We think about how we speak to them and about them, in public or in private. Now, honoring others doesn't mean to agree with them. Honor can't mean and doesn't mean agreement. In 1 Peter 2.15, For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Peter is saying two things. 
Some people have foolish thoughts. Sure, honor them anyway. You can and you should disagree with foolish and ignorant ideas, all the while honoring and loving the people who wrongly hold them. We want to separate the person from their opinion. This is a deep attitude change, and I, I get it. But this different mindset is what Paul says to be in the world, engaging with it, but not of the world, with its values of attacking and counterattacking, especially in social media. In John 15, 19, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. I want to urge us to show grace and honor others with different viewpoints than our own. They are made in the same image of God as you and I are. We believers know that as sinners saved by grace, that everyone around us, no matter what they believe or how they treat us, is also a sinner who needs grace. Honoring them means we are, we are looking for ways to do, to do good to them. When the world is shaming each other, we are looking for ways to honor. When the world is cursing each other, we are, we are looking for ways to bless. When everyone is spewing hatred, we are looking for ways to forgive. It's when that happens, when you're public and passionate about Jesus, when you're up against ignorant fools who speak against you, that's when you do good. That's when you honor. So how can we respond practically in today's environment? The pandemic, the racial injustice, politics. Okay, well, here, the heart of the issue is that we've forgotten to love our neighbors as ourselves. And this is the basis in which I want to talk about these three controversial topics. In Matthew 22, verse 37, Jesus, re- Jesus replied, he's being asked, what's the greatest commandment? Uh, he replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. I've spoken in a previous message that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God. And the most practical way we can love the Lord our God is to love our neighbor as ourselves. So the two go hand in hand. Okay, first, let's talk about COVID-19. Whether or not we should wear masks, whether or not we should shut down the economy, indoor gatherings, everyone has their opinion. And I think, to begin with, admittedly, science lost a lot of credibility over masks. Should we wear them? Are they useful? Do they even prevent anything anyway? I'm sure you all read the same or similar articles as I did. The debate is still going on. Conflicting research with conflicting results and conclusions. I get it. The best way I can think of this is to contrast masks with seatbelts. When I wear a seatbelt, it's to protect me. And if I see others not wearing their seatbelt, I may remind them to put their seatbelt on, but ultimately, I may leave that choice up to them. Whether or not they wear a seatbelt probably doesn't affect my own safety as much. As long as I have my own on, I'm good. Contrast that with a mask. When I wear a mask, it's to protect others from myself. And that's the biggest difference. So when someone else relatively near me isn't wearing a mask, now it affects my safety. Now I might be more vocal about asking them to put on a mask. So wearing a mask on me personally means that I care about my neighbor. I want to protect my neighbor from me or my breath anyway. So I wear my my mask out in public. I socially distance in public. I believe that masks protect other people from me. This is a practical way of loving our neighbor. Now, 
if you have some strong opinions on on freedom or oxygen levels or difficulty breathing through a mask, well, those topics are probably outside the scope of this message, but I'm willing to dialogue with you on those issues as well. Change my mind. I'll be on the Zoom meet and greet to answer any questions on my personal opinion and research. Regarding not meeting at church, I'm very okay with that. As a reminder, we stop meeting in person because we love and care, care about you, the congregation. You are our neighbor. We made that decision before any government mandate. That decision was made out of care and concern. So to sum up, wearing masks, social distancing, they're an outwardly impractical way to love and care for our neighbor as ourself. We are protecting them. This is the second greatest commandment. Okay, racial injustice. Part of what I'm going to talk about now is from an email I sent out to the church a few months ago. Jane and I have been lamenting about what has happened in America over the summer and continues to happen. Racial injustice. Most of us did not know the name of George Floyd until several minutes of cell phone footage captured his final moments in May. Understandably, the public was enraged, which led to protests nationwide and in some cities, rioting and looting. Jane and I were heartbroken to see downtown LA, Long Beach, other places witness such violence, which brought this issue much closer to home. We quite literally became a nation on fire. The fires and and destruction were devastating, as many small businesses who are still struggling to survive closures due to COVID-19, they now suffered at the hands of rioters. Let me introduce you to a quote from Dr. Martin Luther King. Let me say, as I've always said, and I will always continue to say, that riots are socially destructive and self-defeating. I'm still convinced that non-violence is the most potent weapon available to oppress people in their struggle for freedom and justice. I feel that violence will only create more social problems than they will solve. We'll continue to condemn riots and continue to say to my brothers and sisters that this is not the way. Continue to affirm that there is Another way. It is true that Dr. King was against riots and presumably looting. I hold this position as well. Some of the protesters we have all seen on TV were rioting, destroying property, looting stores. That was lawless. It weakened the voice of BLM. It hurt communities. But Dr. King also said this. But at the same time, it is as necessary for me to be as vigorous in condemning the conditions which cause persons to feel that they must engage in riotous activities as it is for me to condemn riots. I think America must see that riots do not develop out of thin air. Certain conditions continue to exist in our society, which must be condemned as vigorously as we condemn riots. But in the final analysis, a riot is the language of the unheard. I had seen the last sentence of the quote above on social media quite often, as I'm sure you had as well. He was outlined more than once, and each time in context, yes, he was against riots for sure, but he acknowledged that the, quote, intolerable conditions that exist in our society, unquote, the reasons, the reasons that drive people to violence must be addressed. 
For America this past summer, those intolerable conditions were racial injustice. Paul writes to the province in Galatia, in Galatians 3, 26-29, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, nor slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Yes, our identity is in Christ, not in our race or gender or other things, as Paul says in this passage. But our human sins of racism have hurt others in quantifiable ways. Those same others who are made in the same image of God as you and me. In Colossians 3.11, Paul writes, Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. All right, those, those examples aren't obvious to us, so let's take a look at the context. Greeks and Jews were people of different races. Circumcised and uncircumcised people uh, were people from different religious backgrounds. Barbarians were people who did not speak the same language as the others in the Roman Empire. Scythians were considered to be people of, of no culture and no social status. Slaves or bondservants were the lowest in terms of wealth and economic status. Paul was stressing that nothing, nothing, race, education, income, social status, language, political differences, nothing was to feed into the bigotry that separated God's people. So, whatever your thoughts about rioting, looting, protesting, hashtag Black Lives Matter, white privilege, systemic racism, police brutality, or partisan politics, I hope we can agree that now is the time for racial reconciliation. I'm sure we all have our own opinions on this, but I firmly believe now is the time to listen, not to lecture. I see many people arguing and insulting each other on social media to no agreement, no resolution, no end. I stay out of those discussions, but it grieves me to see some of the language people use against one another, and even by Christians. Real change must come about, and it starts with the human heart. We need to approach God with an attitude of humility to acknowledge um, um, that our sins have contributed heavily to a broken world. And part of that is racism, which I also personally experienced growing up in the Midwest. My, my graduating class was about 565 kids. I was one of three Asians out of, 300, or out of 565 kids. I was made fun of for being Asian. Kids would make up insulting chants or make, make up funny Chinese noises and sounds, mocking me. It hurt. And I remember being so angry and talking to my mom about it, but she was just as powerless against the school bullies. What could she do? It felt hopeless. Remember what I said earlier? Our life experiences shape how we view events in the world. My life experience is different from the life experience of probably most of the youth, youth kids who are growing up in Asian-saturated schools. I've asked them before. They say they experience very little racism. Biologically, of course, we are only one race, the human race. Our current racial divides of black and white, yellow, red, brown, whatever else color there may be, those are sociological ones. The Bible speaks clearly to the truths that God created and values ethnic and cultural diversity. It speaks clearly to the fact that God hates 
oppression. Yes, there are some protesters who behave wrongly. Some of those actions have been captured on video, but they don't represent all protesters. Yes, there are some police who have behaved wrongly. Some of those actions have been captured on video, but they don't represent all police. We have a people group crying out for justice. Don't their claims of systemic injustice warrant an investigation on our part? Rather than than us forming an opinion based solely on our own life experiences or the life experiences of those who look like us or are in the same socioeconomic class as us? You may disagree that there is racism in America. Maybe you think that that systemic racism doesn't exist. Okay, but can you at least listen to someone who thinks that there is? Or do you automatically dismiss them out of hand and dislike them for thinking differently than you do? I encourage you to dialogue with somebody different than you or your background. So here are some practical ways to help if you are so inclined as suggestions Jane and I have contributed to these seven groups. Okay, finally, the third thing, politics. I'm actually not going to say too much here. But I get that we can have pretty strong opinions on our governance, especially when it can impact us directly, financially, um, our our freedoms, our livelihood. I look back in all the presidential elections I was eligible to vote in beginning in 1992. And I have voted Republican. I have voted Democrat. I have voted Independent. I'm not here to tell you what to think or how to vote. I think you all know that. We all need to think for ourselves. So prayerfully consider who to vote for. And I would suggest choosing a candidate or platform that is most aligned biblically or exhibits a personality or policies of loving their neighbors as themselves. I do see people identifying more as Republican or more as a Democrat rather than as identifying as a Christian. But remember the verses from Paul that I showed you before? For you are all one in Christ Jesus in Galatians. Christ is all and is in all in Colossians. We have to prioritize our Christian identity over our opinions and political views. Our common faith is more important than our differences of opinions on viruses, race relations, or politics. So, since all these events, pandemic, racial injustice, politics, will be seen from different points of view and everybody has their own experience and the media is unreliable, what should we do? Well, there's two things I'd like us to consider. First, seek to understand those who have a different viewpoint of your own. Other people are using a different lens than you. Remember, we all have bigot tendencies in all of us. The greatest command to us is to love the Lord our God, and the practical way we can love God is to love our neighbor. When we don't seek to understand other points of view, when we stubbornly stay in our own zone, our hearts become hardened, which is a terrible position to be in. Ask Pharaoh, I'm not asking any of you to change your position. I'm not asking any of you to change your opinion. But I am asking you to just dialogue in a healthy way. The people who disagree with you have a different life experience from you, and they're probably reading different news articles than you are. I think most of us probably lead sheltered lives. We are in a bubble. At least I'm realizing how much I am, and I'm trying to grow. I pray and hope that you will too, or at least have the attitude that you want to grow. I want to expand my thinking. I want to consider other sides. Try to put yourself in other people's shoes. The trips down to LA uh, to feed the homeless with the youth kids have 
have helped me understand homelessness better. Jesus did the same thing. He came down as a human and experienced human things. He ate and drank with us. He told us parables that we understood to teach us. In Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. This verse has a double negative, so let me rephrase. We have a high priest, Jesus, who is able to empathize because he was human. He knows our weaknesses because he was human. In a sense, can we not do the same with our fellow human who disagrees with us? Get to know them, get to know their life story, get to know their struggles? Paul pretty much did the same thing. In 1 Corinthians 9, 19, Though I am free and belong to no one, I made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. Uh, I'm going to skip down to verse 22. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Look at all the groups, all the people groups he's trying to identify with. All for the sake of the gospel. You can see that in verse 23. We can view these events from our point of view, from someone else's point of view, different points of view we read in the media, etc. And that may help us honor one another, show grace to one another, love one another. But ultimately, the real way is to view these events through God's point of view. What would he think of the events of 2020? How might he view them? How might God view our responses to one another? Would he say, great job, humans, in this difficult year, you all are really pulling it together down there? Or something else. Now I get it. No one can know the mind of God. In Romans 11.34. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? I get it. No one knows how God thinks. No one actually gives God advice. But we can infer how he would think of these things. And I go back to the greatest commandment. To love the Lord our God. And therefore the second greatest commandment. To love our neighbor as ourselves. I'd like to see us engage thoughtfully and graciously on these matters. What is God calling us to do? In Psalm 133, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Struggles toward unity aren't anything new. If you read through Paul's letters, you'll see that disagreements were part of congregational life back then. Maybe nothing's changed in 2,000 years. But Paul called the followers of Christ brothers and sisters. And the phrase brothers and sisters is used 271 times in the New Testament. 271 times. We are siblings, family, not associates, not neighbors, not co-workers, not friends. We are family. We have to prioritize our Christian identity over our opinions and political views. Our common faith is more important than our differences of opinion on viruses, race relations, or politics. But, don't get me wrong, love our neighbor by trying to keep them safe. Love our neighbor by listening to their struggles and supporting them for justice. Love our neighbor by listening, considering their opposing political view. Honor everyone, even the foolish ones, just not their ideas. These dark moments however, it can be an opportunity for the light of Christ to shine. As I read this verse out loud, think of the events of 2020. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 8, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, 
but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. I'm going to skip down to verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. He's saying to us, keep our eyes on the ball. Keep our eyes on the prize, Jesus Christ. Generations Church, I know we are struggling right now, but we are going to get through this. The pandemic numbers are going down. I still check them daily. Uh, Some vaccines are in trials already. Uh, Maybe later this year, maybe next year, uh, they'll be ready. People are being brought to justice. It's a slow process. And the election will at least be over in a month, less than a month. We're going to get through this. We're going to be able to meet again and see each other in person again. It's going to be great. So don't lose heart. Let's commit ourselves during these weird times to find an opportunity to show Jesus to our neighbor through our unity. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.